I'm Holiday. I'm Tarrant. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Over there. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warmth? Picture it. Sicily. 1922. Oh, shit. Hey, everybody. Hi. Uh, I lost audio. I lost my audio for a moment. Hold on here. There we go. Hey, welcome, everybody, to uh, Killer's Cults and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, your, your grateful host, the great white snark, Scotty J, and seated virtually across from me, on our journey into madness is the lovely and beautiful Monica. Hi. Boy, she came out enthusiastic with that one today, folks. Somehow. <laughs> right. <laughs> she woke up and took a pep pill this morning. Yeah. Her, her, her mom. My usual it, pep pill. Yeah, her mom snuck it in in a piece of cheese on her uh <laughs> In her bowl of Cheerios. I don't know why. Just like the dog. Right. <laughs> you hide it in a piece of cheese. Uh-huh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who have, uh, for those of you who are just now joining us, I'm going to make this announcement now because I'll probably forget at the end of the show. But we are now on Spotify. Woo! Yay! Woo! And, Stewie even enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> because, I mean, Spotify is one of those platforms like everybody uses. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've got Spotify on my phone and I'll play music. I'll play podcasts when I don't have my iPod with me, but, you know, Spotify is a great platform. We're on there. So find us and join the growing family. Big time, baby. Right. I made it. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> right. that's the way we work. <laughs> well, I'm still I'm still working to get us on iTunes, so just bear with me. Hopefully, by time you know when I do a uh, Bell Guinness, we'll have uh, we'll be on iTunes. <laughs> we are going to go back. We're going to finish up this week with uh, our our friend, our pastor, Jim Jones. Now. You know, when we last left Jim, you know, he's in California. He's he's got uh was he has the one up there in uh, Redwood Valley. And he, he's branching down into San Diego and San Francisco, helping with you know, helping with the Patty Hearst deal, helping Harvey Milk. So by 1971, the temple had flourished under Jim Jones's control. Jones was a part of everything the Temple did, which led him to begin to abuse drugs, to stay awake, and to fall asleep. And we've all heard this one before, folks. How many, well, you're going to notice this when we start really getting into more of these uh, these cult leaders, that drugs becomes a major, major thing for them because they, they got... The paranoia, the, they got to stay awake, they got to fall asleep, they, you know, everything about them being in control helps fuel the drugs. It was at this time that Jones began to wear his trademark dark sunglasses. Why? To hide the fact that he was stoned. 1971 is also announced to Marcy that he was taken on a mistress. Since the early days of the temple, Jim and Marcy were referred to as father and mother. But as the years went on, Marcy's health began to decline. Jim was still married to her, but you know, he no longer felt sexually attracted to her. So he took on Temple member Karen Layton, the second wife of his friend Larry Layton, as his, as his mistress. Then Jones added Grace Stone as a mistress, with Grace becoming pregnant in March or April of 71. Now, as we mentioned before, Jim had set up the planning commission as a way for the members to feel that they were in control. But Jim was really, uh, well, at this point, it was Jim Henson. He had his hands up everyone's ass because he was the puppet master on this one. 
yeah, I know someone's going to complain. Did I made a Jim Henson reference on this? It's the only thing I can think of right now, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, and it fits, so. Well, I mean, I, I could have said Jeff Dunham, but the, the name wouldn't have worked. Jim Henson worked yeah. with mm -hmm. Jim Jones. That's what I said. They're either like all the Jims, they're, you know, James, Jimmy, whatever, you know, some variation. They're all either like really cool or they're all really psychotic. Right. So that's, You're right. I mean, fortunately, it seems to be more cool, but. Right. Well, you know, yeah. it, 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 you, you don't get a comfortable middle. It's one spectrum or the no, other. Exactly. Yep. Also, the commission was a place where Jones could brag about who he was sleeping with. Yep. Guy's locker room talk there, folks. I'm not going to say the line, but we all know the line. In many cases, the commission was there to mete out punishments that Jim felt members needed. In one instance, a member, Peter Witherspoon, was a pedophile. He was brought before the commission when reports surfaced that he propositioned a young boy for sex. Well, Jim had Witherspoon drop his pants and place his genitals on a table. Another member beat his genitals with a rubber hose until they were swollen. And the, the, I'm trying to think. Uh, the podcast Promised Land, I actually heard the audio from this incident. You have to find it. I think I've seen some, like I've listened to some of the Promised Land. I'll think. Yeah, this. Oh. Didn't listen to this one yet. Oh, this one, this one, I, well, when I was working at Walmart, I was listening to it. I think I was in um, either Pets or Health and Beauty, and I'm hearing some guy get whacked in the genitals with a rubber hose. I think he would have actually, like, recorded Jim had that, never, too. He like had him and Nixon. Never, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nixon. Nut job. Uh -huh. Still, yeah. Jim had everything recorded, like, in the next one with... um. Lori Efren. Now, she was accused of wanting to sleep with Jones. He was ordered to strip naked in front of the commission while Jones made fun of how she looked, saying, you are the one person here I don't want to sleep with. Now, she remained loyal to Jones. Sometimes, and, and this was a recording I heard too, sometimes as punishment, he would have people put on boxing gloves and box, but the fights were often mismatched, like you'd get a big, you know, six foot 250 pound muscle man against a 98 pound weakling in box e you know that weakling was going to get messed up now as the temple spread to la and san francisco defections continued to keep the flock loyal jones held a service in redwood valley suddenly there was a loud noise and jim fell to the ground blood coming from his chest his inner circle carried him into a building while the congregation thought father's dead who gets the inheritance now when they were told that evening services were still being held naturally they were all confused when they came in they found joe standing at the lectern he had told them that the, he told the congregation that he had healed himself and brought himself back from the dead these people believed it even though this entire thing was staged Jones began to receive negative press beginning in October 1971 when reporters covered one of Jones' divine healing services during a visit to his old church in Indianapolis. The news report led to an investigation by the Indiana State Psychology Board into Jones' healing practices in 1972. A doctor involved in the investigation accused Jones of quackery and challenged Jones to give tissue samples of the material he claimed fell off people when they were healed of cancer. The investigation caused alarm within the temple. Now, they didn't like, have you the, think? Well, they didn't have the tissue because he fried it up and had it with some potatoes and some green beans, you know? Yeah, after services, you know, on Sunday, yeah. It's like, right, you know, they have a chicken gizzard, you know? Yeah, like a wasted. Oh, hell no, not chicken gizzards. Uh-huh. Jones had been performing faith healing miracles since his joint campaigns with William Branham. On several occasions, his healings were revealed as nothing but a hoax. In one incident, it was alleged that Jones drugged Temple member Irene Mason, and that while she was unconscious, a cast was put on her arm. 
When she regained consciousness, she was told she had fallen and broken her arm and taken and been taken to the hospital. In a subsequent healing service, Jones removed her cast off in front of the congregation and told them she was healed. In other instances, Jones had someone from his inner circle enter the prayer line for healing of cancer. After being healed, the person would pretend to cough up the tumor, which was actually a chicken gizzard, again. Yeah, and they fried it up. And, they still, know. yeah. I, I cooked this better than the colonel. Yeah, he couldn't think up anything now. No. Yep. I, would, I would actually like to find a book on, on like, the, the fake uh, faith healing and do a show about it. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, let, let me, I'll, I'll start looking when we get done. Yeah. Jones was fearful that his methods would be publicly exposed by the investigation. In response, Jones announced he was terminating his ministry in Indiana because it was too far from California for him to attend to and downplayed his healing claims to the authorities. The issue only escalated, however, and Lester Kinsolving ran a series of articles targeting Jones and People's Temple in the San Francisco Examiner in September 1972. The stories reported on Jones' claims of divinity and exposed purported miracles as a hoax. In 73, Ross Case, a former follower of Jones, began working with a group in Ukiah to investigate the temple. They uncovered a staged healing, the abusive treatment of a woman in the, in the church, and evidence that Jones had Jones raped a male member of his congregation. Reports of Case's activities reached Jones, who became increasingly paranoid that the authorities were after him. Case reported his findings to the police, but eh, they once again didn't do anything. Now, shortly after this, eight members of the temple made accusations of abuse against the planning commission and the people's temple staff members. They accused members of the planning commission of being homosexuals and questioned their true commitment to socialism before leaving the temple. Jones became convinced he was losing control and needed to relocate the temple to escape the mounting threats and allegations. Now, these people became known as the, uh, oh God, the, the group of eight. They were college students that uh, Jones had, they were people's temple members and they were living in housing that the temple set up. They were paying their education, but they also felt that, um, because there wasn't enough black members on the board that Jones's preachings, you know, his, his commitment to socialism wasn't socialism and equality between the races wasn't as good as what he reported it to be. Now on December 13th, 1973, Jones was arrested and charged with lewd conduct for allegedly masturbating in the presence of a male undercover LAPD vice officer in a movie theater restroom near Los Angeles, MacArthur park. MacArthur park is frightening in the dark. Oh, wait, I was going to mix that with a, uh, Weird Al's Jurassic Park. On December 20th, 1973, the charge against Jones was dismissed, though the details of the dismissal are not clear. The file was sealed and the judge ordered that the records of the arrest be destroyed. So basically, he was caught doing a uh, George Michael. I've been in that um, bathroom, actually the bathroom stall. You were in the bathroom stall that George Michaels got caught beating off in. Yep. Oh my! Yeah, a few I years ago, on what the, the only like good tour in Los Angeles that no longer exists, oh and God. I'm very sad. Yep. I, I have a picture of me. It's like uh, I have to. Um, I don't know if it's in the photo album I have here, or like you know, like in storage. I would have loved but, yeah. to have seen that bath. I would have loved to have seen the stall. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'll have to like look for it. And then, you know, maybe like, if I find it, I'll put it up in you know Facebook group. Oh man, I so. I would have been that stall singing. Got to have faith, faith, faith. Got to have faith, faith. And I'm shaking my butt too the whole time. Baby. Yeah. Yeah, this is what I do on vacations. So <laughs> I really do that too, but yeah. I go to battlefields, Monica goes and visits where stars whacked off in public. 
Keeping it classy here. Right. Have <laughs> you ever been to the theater where uh, Pee Wee Herman got caught? No. I would love to go there. Be, I'd sit there and go. It doesn't even exist anymore, too. <laughs> I know you are, but Yeah, that was like over was 30 in, years ago now. I was in high school when that happened. Yeah, that's like saying if like it doesn't even exist anymore now. So Jones, anyway, continue. <laughs> Jones also pretended to have special revelations about individuals, which revealed supposed hidden hidden details of their lives. When Patty the Patty Hearst kidnapping happened, her kidnappers demanded that her parents conducted a conducted a food giveaway. Jones offered to help the people. The offered the help of the People's Temple to assist with the food giveaway. Jones even offered to take Patty's place with her kidnappers to ensure her safe return. In the fall of 1973, Jones and the Planning Commission devised a plan to escape from the United States in the event of a government raid and began to develop a longer-term plan to relocate People's Temple. The group decided on Guyana as a favorable location citing its recent revolution, socialist government, and the favorable reaction Jones received when he traveled there in 1963. In October, the, vote, the group voted unanimously to set up an agricultural commune in Guyana. Stumbling over everything today. In December... Yeah, me too. It's like, oi. In December, Jones and James traveled to Guyana to find a suitable location. You say you want a revolution, well, don't you know? We all in a newspaper interview, Jones indicated that he would rather settle his commune in a communist country like China or the Soviet Union and was saddened about his inability to do so. Jones described Lenin and Stalin as his heroes and saw the Soviet Union as an ideal society. How did that work out for him? Yep. By the summer of 1974, land and supplies were purchased in Guyana. <clears throat> James was put in charge of the project and oversaw the installation of a power generation station, clearance of fields for farming, and the construction of dormitories to prepare for the first settlers. In December 1974, the first group arrived in Guyana to start operating the commune that would be, become known as Jonestown. Jones left James to oversee Jonestown while he returned to the United States to continue his efforts to combat the negative press. He was largely unsuccessful, and more stories of abuse in People's Temple were leaked to the public. In March 1977, Marshall Kildoff published a story in New West Magazine exposing abuses at the People's Temple. The article included allegations by temple defectors of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. The article convinced Jones that it was time to permanently relocate to South America, and he began to compel members of People's Temple to make the move with him. Jones promoted the commune as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the media scrutiny in San Francisco. Jones purported to establish it as a model communist community adding that the temple comprised the purest communists there are. Once they arrived in Jonestown, Jones prevented members from leaving the settlement. I think he took their um, passports. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, uh-huh, he took yeah. them. Yeah, took the passports. For their what, for their safety or what, like for some, safekeeping, something like something that. Like that. Some, some crazy shit like that. Yeah, he said like, oh, everything, like it'd be safer, like, yeah, if they didn't have their hands on it. Right. So, Jonestown had about 50 settlers at the start of 1977 who were expanding the commune, but it was not ready to handle a large influx of settlers. James warned Jones that the facilities could only support um, 200 people. But Jones believed that the need to relocate was urgent and determined to move immediately. In May of 1977, Jones and about 600 of his followers arrived in Jonestown. About 400 more followed in the subsequent months. Jones began moving the temple's financial assets overseas and started to sell off property in the United States. Now, the temple had over 10 million in assets at the time. 
but you know, you want to make it look like you're poor. See, kids, this is slush funding 101. Move your assets to offshore accounts so that the government can't touch them. Yeah, don't don't y'all watch narco? I haven't watched narco, but I watched enough crim I watched enough mafia movies to know this stuff. Now, despite the negative press prior to his departure, Jones was still well-respected outside of the temple for setting up a racially integrated church, which helped the disadvantaged. 68% of Jonestown residents were black. Among the followers Jones took to Guyana was John Stone. John's birth certificate listed Timothy Stone and Grace Stone as his parents. Well, Jones and Grace had a relationship and claimed he was the biological father of John. Grace left the temple in 76, leaving her child behind. Jones ordered the child to be taken to Guyana in February of 77 to avoid a custody dispute with Grace. After Timothy Stone also left the temple in June of 77, Jones kept the child at his home in Jonestown. Because, you know, I... I had this happen to me once with my dad. Um, he was supposed to bring me home one one weekend. He didn't do it. My mom showed up with my uncle with a baseball bat and four cops. And all I can remember is I was watching Bozo. He answered. There was a knock at the door. He answered. I saw my mom. I came running. And then, you know, she's like, is Scotty here? Mind you, the cops heard me say, mom saw me run into the door. He pushed me back, went, no, he's not here. And all of a sudden there was like a blue wave coming in through the door. And I was handed off to like the first female officer in Bradley, Illinois. They. It's like, well, it's like, also, if he said like you weren't, I mean, he was supposed to have you anyway. So right. like. Like, that's a problem in itself. If, like, you're not there. Like, why aren't you there? Right. Well, well, the cops went in. He got arrested. They gave me to my mom. And my Uncle Vaughn, who was carrying a baseball bat, because he told the cops, uh, you better go with us, otherwise I'm doing some batting practice. <laughs> uh, my uncle looked at me and goes, hey, you want to go get some pancakes? What kid's going to say no to pancakes? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. Who's going to say no to pancakes? So, uh, <laughs> so we went to went to the most racially named store we had, which was called Sambo's. Their mascot was a tiger. Mm-hmm. Well, then, then turn into Denny's. I, no, Denny's isn't even around anymore. Oh, I. So, I mean, it's it's around, but there's like, yeah, it's not nearly. Yeah, as I have a Denny's up here. Much. It's, it's yeah. more of a diner now than anything, but. Yeah. Well, there was that Denny's there on Baltimore Pike that I eat at when I um, stayed in Philly. Yeah, not there. They closed that up. They did? Uh-huh. Yeah, like a while ago. The probably like right after, yeah, probably like right after you were here. Oh, damn it. Yep. But, uh, you know, we went to Sambo's, we had some pancakes, and I had a good day. In the autumn of 1977, Timothy Stone and other temple defectors formed a concerned relatives group because they had family members in Jonestown who were not being permitted to return to the U.S. Stone traveled to Washington, D.C. in January of 78 to visit with State Department officials and members of Congress, back when Congress actually did something, and wrote a white... Yeah, they're actually, they're, they're kind of doing something now, well, we'll discuss well, too, but hopefully I'll work of course the supreme court's screwing that up too now so like oh, wow. ugh, okay i i guess i'll talk about it i'll be going on a rant and be one of those people i complain about talk about everything else but the case so, okay well when i when i become president i'm going to change it all uh members of congress who wrote a white paper detailing his grievances against Jones and the temple and to and to admit attempt to recover his son. His efforts aroused the curiosity of California Congressman Leo Ryan, who wrote a letter on Stone's behalf to the Guyanese Prime Minister Forbes Burnham. 
the concerned relatives began a legal battle with the temple over the custody of Stone's son. Most of Jane's political allies broke ties after his departure, though some did not. Willie Brown spoke out against the temple's purported enemies at a rally that was attended by Harvey Milk and Assemblyman Art Agnos. Mayor Moscone's office issued a press release saying Jones had broken no laws. We really got to cover the uh, oh, yeah. Moscone uh -huh. uh, Milk assassination. Yeah. On April 11th, 1978, the concerned relatives distributed a packet of documents, letters, and affidavits to the People's Temple, members of the press, and members of Congress, which they titled An Accusation of Human Rights Violations by Reverend James Warren Jones. Catchy. In June 1978, escaped Temple member Deborah Layton provided the group with a further affidavit detailing crimes by the temple and substandard living conditions in Jonestown. Jones was facing increasing scrutiny in the summer of 1978 when he hired JFK assassinations conspiracy theorists Mark Lane and Donald Freed to help make the case of a grand conspiracy against the temple by U.S. intelligence agencies. Jones told Lane that he wanted to pull an Eldridge Cleaver referring to a fugitive member of the Black Panthers who was able to return to the U.S. after rebuilding his reputation. I'm sorry, I ruined your Black Panther party, Janae. God, you're Generation X. Yes, I am. <laughs> Jones attempted to negotiate for his commune to resettle in the Soviet Union, because that was such a mud wall. No. Cold versus hot, so it's like well, they listen guess, to the yeah. Beatles album, you know. They, they uh -huh. listen to they listen to back in the USSR and they played it backwards, and you know, hey, and they talked to Charles. Yeah, if it worked for Manson. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like let's just go through the whole entire catalog here, and then you know. Man, have you heard "Love Love Me Do"? Man, I'm telling you, there's something in the music, man. They're telling me a message. In October 1978, Theodor Timofeyev, Soviet consul to Guyana, visited Jonestown for two days and gave a speech. Jim Jones stated beforehand, for many years, we have let our sympathies be quite publicly known that the United States government was not our mother, but that the Soviet Union was our spiritual motherland. Timofeyev declared Jonestown in harmony of theory with Marx, Engels, Lenin, and the practical implementation of some fundamental features of this theory, and personally thanked Jim Jones. Yeah, sure. What the, well, whatever he said, folks, let's give him a big hand. Yay! Huzzah! Yeah, someone, <laughs> some, I wonder if there was someone there to translate or if, or if he knew enough English. To, to give his own speech. I'm sure he probably slipped a few dollars and like, here you go. <laughs> they had the, the, the lady out there in the front doing or, the He slipped some rubles. There we go. Right. Rubles at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Before the euro. <laughs> yeah. But then they, they had the little lady out front doing the sign language for everybody. Um, yep. Jones' paranoia and drug usage increased in Jonestown as he became fearful of a government raid on the commune. Concerned the community would not be able to resist an attack, he began holding drills to test their readiness. Right, he called, we call these creepy crawlies, but you could call them whatever, man. Wrong called leader. Uh, well, you know, hey, I'm sure, I'm sure they all shared the newsletter. Uh, how to run your own cult. Right, how to, how to run your cult in three easy steps. <laughs> get the women, the women, man, get the women. Shut up, Charlie. <laughs> he called the drills white knights, which I said it's kind of ironic with all well, the later attached with the whole Moscone thing. That's always thought that was kind of funny, but yeah, the white knight thing. Isn't that? Oh no, that's knights in white satin. Okay, I get it. Yeah. I was uh huh. Knights in okay. white satin. James would call alert, alert, alert over the community loudspeaker to call the community together in the central pavilion armed guards with guns and crossbows 
surrounded the pavilion. Yeah, the, the, the crossbows. What is this? 13th century, you know, the Middle Ages in Europe. And, and, and well, they had, hey, in their defense, they had to build all, everything right from the scratch and also. Okay. Yeah. I, I can get 13th century England, but, you know, mm -hmm. yelling alert, it was a lot better than danger. Danger, Will Robinson. That would have been cooler. Oh, God, it would, especially if you could get a recording of the robot's voice when he did it. Uh huh. And Dr. Smith screaming like a bitch in the background. Ooh. That would be neat. I watched way too much Lost in Space. I was like, who's the um the the girl in it? Like, forget. Well, I, was, I never actually actually watched it. Uh, there, well, the, the, the teenager, I guess. It would have been Penny. I guess, yeah. Yeah, Penny was older than than Will. Yeah, because I did the um the blob run out of the theater like several years ago with Christina, and she was there. Oh, nice. Yeah. So. Okay. I don't like that. Yeah. That was like, a bucket list thing. Yeah, I'd like to met Dr. Smith because, you know, he was he was up that man was up to something every episode. Yeah, that's what actually I've literally never seen an episode of Lost in Space. It wasn't on the afternoon schedule for if you know back in the eighties, so I uh <laughs> I am not gonna comment. We'll, like, we'll be discussing this later, I, I can tell now, so, okay. <laughs> the committee members would remain at the pavilion throughout the drill, in which Jones told them that their community had been surrounded by agents who were about to destroy them. Agents who had better weapons than crossbows, okay? And Jones led them in prayers, chanting and singing to ward off the impending attack. Like a rousing chorus at Kumbaya was going to do that. Does anybody know a hit by the Beach Boys? Help me, Rhonda. That's a good one. Let's start. Now, sometimes he would have his guards hide in the forest and shoot their firearms to simulate an attack, which is a waste of ammunition if you're on a limited budget. Jones's terrified followers were only told they were participating in a drill when the event was over. One drill lasted for six days. Way too much time. The drill served to keep the members of Jonestown fearful of venturing outside of the commune. Following two visits by the United States Embassy personnel to check on the situation in Jonestown and an IRS investigation in early 78, Jones became increasingly convinced that the attack he feared was imminent. In one 1978 white night drill, Jones told his followers he was going to distribute poison for everyone to drink in an act of suicide. A batch of fruit punch was served to everyone in the pavilion who sat by weeping and waiting for their death. After some time had passed, Jones informed his followers that it was only a drill and there was not any poison in their drink. Through the White Nights, Jones convinced his followers that the CIA was actively working to destroy their community and conditioned them to accept suicide as a means of escape. The situation at Jonestown was de deteriorating in 1978. The community was exhausted and overworked. Most were, were required to perform manual label, label, sorry, manual labor from early morning until evening. Loudspeakers were installed around Jonestown and sermons were played on a constant loop for the entire community to listen to. Man, I would have stuffed anything in my ears after day one. If I had to listen to him continually rant, you know, preaching, I'm stuffing, I'm going out in the jungle and finding banana leaves. I don't care if there's jaguars out there, man. I'm putting banana leaves in my ears. Jones began to propagate his belief in what he termed translation. Once his followers settled into Jonestown, claiming that he and his followers would all die and live blissfully together in the afterlife. Meals were meager and workers were often hungry. After spending all day working, the community gathered each evening at the Central Pavilion to listen to Jones preach again. His sermons generally lasted for several hours and most of the community was sleep deprived. 
The majority of the community members were minors or the elderly, and the fewer people of working age found it difficult to keep up with the workload required to support the community. Healthcare, education, and food rations were all in limited supply, and the situation was worsening. Jones' drug use was becoming more noticeable. His orders were increasingly erratic. He could sometimes be seen staggering, and his speech was occasionally slurred. He was seen urinating in public, but this was due to parsitosis for a short time towards the end of Jonestown in late October 1978. He found it difficult to walk without assistance around this time, but it cleared up by Leo Ryan's visit. Of course it did. Oh, uh, yeah. He healed himself. Yep. Religious scholar Mary McCormick Maggot argues that Jones's authority among his followers decreased after the exodus to Jonestown because he was with them every day and he could not hide his drug addiction from rank and file members. No, you can't. I mean, if you were go, if you were somewhere else, like you know, San Francisco or L.A. or even Indianapolis, he could hide it better. Not out there. Yeah. In the jungle. Not out in the jungle, man. You know how yeah, but then they, but they were stuck too, so it kind of worked out for him. So right, they were all stuck there, so they got to see him stumbling around and and high all the time. You know yeah, hard, you know how hard it is for Tarzan to hide in the jungle. No, I do not. Well, I mean, he, <laughs> he, he's a white guy, so he's hiding out there in the jungle. Yeah, you know. uh -huh. but he was raised by the apes, so he knows how to do it. Okay. In November 1978, Congressman Ryan led a fact-finding mission to Jonestown to investigate allegations of human rights abuses. His delegation included relatives of Temple members, an NBC camera crew, and reporters for several newspapers. The group arrived in the Guyanese capital of Georgetown on November 15th. Two days later, they traveled by airplane to Port Kaituma. That's right. How I pronounced it, right? I think. Yeah, Port Kaituma. Yeah, okay. Because I've read, like, heard so many times, not enough to say it myself. I'm like, wait, did I say it right? Then we were transported to Jonestown. Jones hosted a reception for the delegation that evening at the Central Pavilion in Jonestown, during which Temple member Vernon Gosney passed a note meant for Ryan to NBC reporter Don Harris, requesting assistance for himself and another Temple member, Monica Bagby, in leaving the settlement. Tensions began to rise as news spread through the community that some members were attempting to leave. Ryan's delegation left hurriedly the afternoon of November 18th after Ryan narrowly avoided being stabbed by Temple member Don Sly. Ryan and his delegation managed to take along 15 Temple members who expressed a desire to leave, and Jones made no attempt to prevent their departure at that time. As members of Ryan's delegation boarded two planes at the Port Kaituma airstrip, Jones' armed guards, led by Joe Wilson, Thomas Kice Sr., and Ronnie Dennis, arrived and began shooting at them. The gunmen killed Ryan and four others near a Guyana Airways Twin Otter aircraft. At the same time, one of the supposed defectors, Larry Layton, drew a weapon and began firing on members of the party inside the other plane, a Cessna, which included Gosney and Bagby. NBC cameraman Bob Brown was able to capture footage of the first few seconds of the shooting at the Otter just before he himself was killed by the gunmen. Do you think anybody on that plane had planned to sing La Bamba when they went up in the air? Funny. Or Freebird? I might mention one of Jim's songs. Two, if we're going to be time, time in the bottle, yeah, thank you. We're going to be mentioning some, but they did. I remember reading that they were all like, This doesn't make any sense. Like, like they knew he was like, Oh, all of a sudden, he's like, I want to escape too. They were, they knew he was trouble right. with that. So, well, I mean, I only hey, you know, I only went with La Bamba and Freebird because I got in trouble for singing those on a little Buddy Holly killer. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of bad when the pilot looks back at you like, really, dude? Honestly? Mm -hmm. 
Hey, turn around, fly the plane. I'll, I'll lead the sing along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, on one. Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue. Oh. I've also actually seen Richard Valens' grave, too. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, die. Which I did not realize before we were staying, which was only 12 minutes. So I'm like, oh, nice. This time, yeah. So I'm like, I did not realize till we came back. And, but yeah, like, fingers crossed again. So, okay, sorry. I just. <laughs> I have, you know, you had your talking about your birthdays. I have this. Okay, so, okay. I'm shutting off now. (laughs) The five killed at the airstrip were Ryan Harris Brown, San Francisco examiner photographer Greg Robinson, and Temple member Patricia Parks. Surviving an attack were future Congresswoman Jackie Spear, a Ryan staff member, Richard Dwyer, deputy chief of mission from the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown, Bob Flick, an NBC producer, Steve Sung, an NBC sound engineer, Tim Reiterman, an examiner reporter, Ron Javers, a Chronicle reporter, Charlie Krause, a Washington Post reporter, and several defecting temple members. They escaped into the jungle to avoid being killed, at least by gunfire, because there's still jaguars and shit out there. Later the same day, November 18, 1978, Jones received word that his security guards failed to kill all of Ryan's party. Jones concluded the escapees would soon inform the U.S. of the attack and they would send the military to seize Jonestown. Jones called the entire community to the Central Pavilion. He informed the community that Ryan was dead and it was only a matter of time before the military commandos descended on their commune and killed them all. Jones told Temple members that the Soviet Union would not give them passage after the airstrip shooting. Jones said, we can check with Russia to see if they'll take us in in immediately. Otherwise, we die. Asking the crowd, you think Russia's going to want us with all this stigma? No, not really. With that reasoning, Jones and several members argued that the group should commit revolutionary suicide. Jones recorded the entire death ritual on audio tape, and I've listened to it, and it is horrifying. Jones had taken large shipments of cyanide into Jonestown prior to November of 78, having obtained a jeweler's license that would allow him to purchase a compound in bulk to purportedly clean gold. A drink mixture of Flavorade and cyanide was created and handed out to the members of the community to drink. Those who refused to drink were injected with cyanide through a syringe. One temple member, Christine Miller, dissented toward the beginning of the tape. When members wept and showed signs of dissent, Jones counseled, stop these hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialist or communist to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. Jones can't be heard saying, don't be afraid to die adding that death is just stepping over into another plane and adding that death is a friend. Jones directed that the children be killed first. His wife, Marceline, apparently protested against killing the children. Marceline was forcibly restrained and then joined the other adults in poisoning herself after the children had died. At the end of the tape, Jones concludes, we didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. 85 members of the community survived the event. Some members slipped into the jungle just as the death ritual began. One man hid in a ditch. One elderly woman hid in her dormitory and slept through the event, awakening to find everyone dead. And I I picture this woman like Sophia Petrillo. Picture it. Diana, 1978. I was in my dormitory, tired after a long day of doing nothing. Now, the Jonestown basketball team was away at a game and they survived. I I think um, his son, Stefan, was one of the basketball members. Yeah, Stefan was one of the members. Because he was at the, the house in Jonestown when the the message came over the radio. 
Others hid in the dormitories or away from the community on business when the death ritual unfolded. The mass murder-suicide left dead 909 inhabitants of Jonestown, 304 of them children, mostly in and around the Central Pavilion. This resulted in the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate attack until September 11, 2001. Another four members residing in Georgetown died. The FBI, FBI later recovered the 45-minute audio recording of the mask poisoning in progress. The recording has become known as the death tape. And um, the last time I listened to Promised Land, before I think they went off, they, they never released another episode as far as I've known. They did play the full death tape at the end of the program and gang i'm telling you this is one of the most frightening things i've ever heard and i went you know i i was with my ex-wife in the delivery room i thought my screaming was bad <laughs> hey I, I, you know, yeah I'm trying, trying to lighten it up a little bit yeah but like i watch i can't i think it's a paradise lost documentary okay because I, I think if it might be on like tubi i know i've seen it on streaming that's how i saw it but yeah they have they um had well they had you know re reenactment of it but they had the um this the audio tape going over at the same time like yeah. him talking and it's like saying yeah so it was like totally like Man, spliced together yeah, and that was like the creepiest thing I've it, like seen. It is because you know you're listening to this tape. You're you're listening to him give the commands, and then you hear the kids crying. And you know he's sitting there, and he you know he he's just telling them to you know you know comfort them, tell them it's there's nothing wrong, and you can hear these children crying as the cyanide is is working on them. And then you, then you start hearing the kids just kind of fade away a bit. And then, the, you know, the adults are taking it. And, you know, when they found Jim Jones the next day, when the, the Guyanese uh, soldiers came in, Jim took the coward's way out. They found him dead with a single bullet, uh, bullet hole to the head. So we're not sure. Yeah, it was like the little bitch couldn't like, you know, take his own medicine too. Right. Well, this leads to this leads to a question that um that that I'm kind of wondering here. Did he shoot himself, or did one of his assistants up there shoot himself? I know, I've heard different. I've heard like he shot himself, and I've also heard that you know, kids might shoot him. Right. But I mean, we, that that is one of the lingering questions about Jonestown is. How did he? We know how everyone else died. They, they took, they took the flavor aid. Yeah. Who did Jim pull the trigger, or did someone else pull the trigger on Jim? Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, and I—that's I, a question I don't think we're ever going to get answered because the only ones who can answer that are dead. Mm-hmm. Now I know. Um, there, I think it was in the book um, "Road to Jonestown" by Jeff Gwynn. They showed the picture of uh, at the airfield where they were uh, stacking the cases that had the bodies in it, and Jones's name was written on the side. Oh uh, yeah, uh huh. So I mean, now we're not we're not done with Leo Ryan yet. Leo Ryan is going to appear in our next um, our next case. Uh, I'm I'm just going to announce it now since I'm putting it into the computer and getting it ready. Next time we're going to be covering. I, and I'm pretty sure this is the woman that, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the woman that gave me my love of crazy women. We're going to cover Patty Hearst. Yay! The thing is, is I've always wanted to cover Patty Hearst. I don't know what it is about the case. You know, it's early seventies. You know, we're dealing with the you know the, the radical, the radical underground movements and. San Francisco, 
because of the leftover of the 60s. I don't know. Mm -hmm. what it, I honestly do not know what it is about Patty Hearst. But I've always been interested in this case. And when I was up at Half Price Books and I found the found the book American Heiress, I was like, I have to buy this because this is going to be it. I'm I'm doing a show on Patty Hearst. I don't care. I want to cover this because <laughs> I, like I said, I think she gave me my love of crazy women. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know you're not dealing with a crazy woman if you're not sleeping palm in a blade, you know? Yep. Sleeping with one eye open, gripping the pillow tight. <laughs> Exit light. Oh. I was working on a Metallica song in there. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay, so we're going to wrap this one up, folks. Thank you for joining us through our little three-parter on Jim Jones. <laughs> So, and if they go into the, um, the Facebook group and we post the picture of um, the cameraman's grave from when I was there. You, I mean, where now? This is a, I mean, this is a question that I I have too. Uh, Leo Ryan is he buried in California? Or is he buried out at Arlington? No, if he's if he's at Arlington, I've seen him. No, I think he's in um, like the San Francisco, but yeah, Monica's no, yeah, Golden Gate National Cemetery. Yeah, Monica, that's where he is. Monica's probably covered every inch of Arlington National Cemetery. Almost. <laughs> Next time I go to Arlington, I'm taking you with me so you can point me out to some of the graves that I want to see there. Yeah, because um. But yeah, all these like people, like there are on my. Of course, they have never been up to that area of California, but they're all on my. Like I really want to see their graves. Well, you know, um, what was it? Most of the uh, Jim Jones, he was cremated and his ashes spread at sea. But I think most of the people were claimed by their families and buried in in like hometown cemeteries. Yeah, and then the ones that weren't doing that mass grave. But then there, a few years ago, there was some funeral home that was abandoned, and they found uh, some ashes of, I mean, among, like, the ashes of, like, the boxed-up ashes of people that were still there. There were some people that had died at Jonestown. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, I'll find, I'll try to find the link in, to that story, and I'll put that in yeah. the group, too. Yeah, Um as I said, it's the top of the show. We're now on Spotify. We're on CastBox. We're on uh, Podbean. You know, chances are, if you can find us on a podcasting app that's not Apple, we're there. I'm still working on Apple. So for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs, I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Goodnight, Monica. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night and God bless America.